0: i
1: Welcome back to PEDS Ortho Podcast, September edition. Uh, I will be your quarterback for this episode. It's Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt. And we are joined today uh, by Maurice Bouchard from Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto. Uh, Maurice, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: And as always, uh, the other moderators are here to lend some knowledge. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? This is Carter Coleman from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Hey, this is Josh Holt from University of Iowa. And this is Julie Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado. Awesome. And I want to give a special shout out for this episode uh, for Nemours Hospital System. Um, They're going to be our sponsors and we appreciate them supporting uh, the POSNA mission. And uh, you're going to hear a little bit more from them with a conversation with uh, Dr. Will McKenzie and uh, our very own Carter Clement later on in the episode. So I'm actually just going to uh, kick it over, launch into the main event with Maurice. Uh, Maurice, let's, uh, we like to start off by letting our audience get to know you a little bit. And so we have some kind of serious questions and then a few not serious questions. Um, but maybe you uh, can confirm a few biographical things for me. It's sometimes tough to dig up information. Uh, I have found out that you are Canadian board. Is that right? Can you tell us about where you yeah. grew up and that experience?
2: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm from a small town south of Montreal, um, and I, I grew up in that area right till when I went to college and med school at McGill in Montreal and then uh, residency in Toronto, uh, foot and ankle fellowship in Toronto, and then Pete's fellowship in Seattle. And then I really wasn't done training. So I went to uh, Melbourne and did a limb reconstruction fellowship there for six months, and then landed back in Seattle for three and a half years and slowly found my way back to the near beginning in Toronto back at SickKids. But yeah, no, it's been been great actually to get to train and live in, in different areas, get a good perspective of different health systems and pathology. And so um, I think it characterizes a lot of uh, a lot of what I do, having had those opportunities to be a little all over the place.
1: I was going to say, when I hear your name and think about the papers or the talks I've heard you give, it's all foot and ankle, trauma, deformity. And so it seems like you've made good use of those multiple fellowships. Um, I was on a call last night talking about prospective fellows for Pete's orthopedics. And one of the big questions was, how do you feel about double fellowships? Um, And I I had a hot take where I said, most of the time, you don't need to do them. Don't be bullied into doing them. But I would love to hear your take because you did a number of fellowships and it seems to have made a big difference for you. So Would you expand on that?
2: Sure. It wasn't intentional, actually. It it was more serendipitous. I picked foot and ankle first um, in my third year residency. I kind of got coerced by a a mentor uh, midway through who was you know, like, please come do a fellowship with me. And I was like, well, I have nothing better to do. That sounds like a great plan. Um, and I, it sort of grew foot and ankle grew on me. Um, but I always knew I would prefer to do the younger patient, the adolescent, and if possible work in a children's and, um, and an adult hospital, but that model doesn't really work in Canada. We don't really have a lot of that. So by my fifth year, when I was back at, for my senior peds rotation, all my fellows and staff were pushing me to do a Peds fellowship and to stay in Peds. And so I last minute applied to the match and it made Perfect sense to get a Pete's fellowship with Vince Mosca in uh, his place of work to really be able to marry those those two specialties. So it wasn't I never set out thinking I would do two. It just really made a lot of sense as I started to realize that I liked working in a children's hospital more than an adult hospital. And then um, when I thought about staying in Seattle, and Vince wanted to slow down, he didn't want to do the limb reconstruction bit much anymore. And so I hadn't seen enough in my training to feel like I could start a whole program by myself. So I, I took a six month one, I had an option for a 12 month in Baltimore, and I just couldn't fathom three, uh, three full years of fellowship. So the six months and living in Australia seemed like almost a vacation. So um, that's where I ended up. But so for me, it was really to fill the quiver of the arrows I knew I was going to, to need for that last one. And the first two just married really well in a way I could have never predicted as a resident.
1: Yes, I think serendipitous is a, is a great word for that. And uh, I think you know, even uh, even though Baltimore is a great place to go train, I know you ended up as faculty there for the Baltimore Deformity Course because that's where you taught me to put on tibia frames. So thank you for that. Uh, you, you definitely uh, definitely have the, that area um, as mastered as anyone does. So congratulations. Let me switch to a little um, less orthopedics and more um, kind of get to know you personally. I'm going to ask just for the Canadian thing. What is your least favorite Canadian trope that Americans kind of attribute to your culture? <laughs> is it that there's so Probably many or that you like them all?
2: pronunciations, I would say, of some things. That said, I'm sure there are people in Canada who say the classic you know a boot and things like that but it's definitely not where I grew up at all and so I think for me it's it's probably that and then maybe attributing to us the Canadian tuxedo that I swear to god I've seen more in Montana or Wyoming than I've ever seen in Canada so I'm not not really sure where that came from but there must be people in Alberta or Saskatchewan that do it too yeah probably those classics.
1: Canadian tuxedo. Love it. Um, okay. Which Canadian trope or uh, characterization maybe makes you the most proud or you think is the most accurate?
2: It drives me crazy sometimes too, but I think the fact that we are perhaps a little more patient and understated uh, than our most of our um, neighbors to the South is probably, especially in recent light, I think we're taking a maybe more moderate approach to things. But that said, I, I, I felt like Seattle was very similar that way. I felt pretty at home. People were culturally very similar. I think probably anywhere along the borderline, it's a bit more like that. I'm sure anyone in Minnesota probably identifies more with being a Canadian than someone from the parts of the South, I would have to imagine. But I think that part of our culture is Kind of a nice, moderate, easy to get along with, welcoming kind of vibe that hopefully we all project.
1: Yeah, I think kindness and universal likability uh, definitely rings true to me for for that culture. All right. This is more of a reading the inkblots sort of thing. Rapid Fire, get to know you. Femurs or tibias? Tibias. Coffee or whiskey?
2: uh, I'm going to have to go with Coffee.
1: (laughs) Cats or dogs?
2: Definitely dogs.
1: Um, And then uh, let's see. Uh, Actually, that's all I had planned for that. (laughs) I thought it was going to take longer. (laughs) Um, All right. Um, And then I did want to get your thoughts on the traveling fellowship because I know you recently completed that. And um, I've talked with... Dr. Bauer about it and sat down briefly um, with uh, Dr. Denning and just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. And if you, if you really liked it, maybe give a pitch to the audience about why they should consider one.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It it was an incredible experience, and I think the applications for the next cohort are just opening, so everyone should definitely consider applying. We went to Europe for ours, so we ended up concluding at the EPOS meeting, and um, we started in Switzerland, then Portugal, and then um, a smaller city in Denmark that I hadn't heard of, with the biggest hospital in the country called Aarhus, and then we finished in Copenhagen for the EPOS meeting. But it's really uh, phenomenal. Not only do You get to know two of your, you know, North American colleagues super well, but you really get to establish some amazing relationships with folks over there and see a lot of different things. You know, some things that we do similar and it's great to see, but maybe done with a twist and some things you would never think of doing and just different, different healthcare systems, different pathology, things that are super common in different places uh, that are really rare here or even between the countries. But I, I think we all came away with new people to have clinical research collaborations, with and and lifelong friends I think one of the fellows newly graduated residents and their new fellow is in Portugal is going to be visiting Dr. Bauer in a few weeks maybe Um, she's decided on spine uh, and I've I've joined a couple multi-site studies with some of the crew from the UK that I got to know better when I was at EPOS so I think we've all benefited pretty tremendously and and just as a you know social fun you know experience it it's pretty uh Incomparable to anything else, I think you would you would do, and unlike some of the other fellowships out there, it's it's three weeks or two and a half as opposed to six, and so it doesn't require quite as much out of your practice and your personal life. So I think they've designed it really well, and I certainly would recommend it for anyone.
1: Yeah, I think the the two and a half three week time point makes it a lot more digestible. Um, I certainly worry about all that time away. Carter, Julia, Josh, have you guys considered? Traveling fellowships at all, or anything on the horizon?
0: I mean, I've definitely considered it. I think I'm. Uh, I got some really good advice. You know, at one point, I'd be interested in your opinion on this, Maurice. But to wait till you're like five, six, seven years into practice, just so that you can um, kind of have a little bit more perspective on the things that you're asking, you know, I think we all maybe kind of probably second and third year in practice, like, Oh, I want to see all these things. Cause you suddenly realize there's a, there's a big wide world out there, but it's actually better to wait a couple more years. So I'd be super interested in it in the next few years for sure.
2: Yeah, I, I do agree. I think being in practice, probably, I don't know that it has to be like seven or eight years, but I think maybe five, just enough to kind of get a sense of also what your preferences are, because there's a lot of interactions based on like, well, how do you do this? How do you like to do this? And if you if you haven't really decided what your final approach is, then maybe it would be a little less valuable. But I mean, I think at any point, traveling and um, spending time in other places is great. Like even during my foot and ankle fellowship, I, I spent probably a cumulative over eight weeks of the year in other places in Belgium and in Baltimore and in, in Philly and in with adult foot and ankle surgeons and just even like one week observerships as a very junior person in my stage of my career was so enriching so but I think for these fellowships given you're going to be presenting your work as well and your your research your clinical um, portfolio a little bit um, having a few more years under your belt probably makes sense for that experience.
3: I was just gonna say I think it's a priceless opportunity to do, not only do a formal traveling, but like like Maurice just mentioned, even doing non-formal short one week, two week, three week visits. I had a chance my first couple of years to do a few visits and went down and spent time just independently working in New Zealand with some of the people that we all know very well down there and had a wonderful experience and learned a lot in that month that I was there and a few other shorter things I've done here stateside that especially pediatric orthopedics, it's an extremely small field where you can really gain a lot by doing short interactions with other people. Actually, Julie, I'm going to be in Denver working with one of your compadres doing some robotic spine stuff next month. So just even the small things that we can do just to expand our knowledge and interact with people in kind
1: of social ways is is such a value of our field in particular well said all right maybe let's dig into a few of the articles that we had talked about that you've you've recently published Um, the first one is i think a really good uh, mix of your different interests and foot and limb limb deformity or uh, limb length discrepancy so this is in the august jpo It's called Clinically Detected Leg Length Discrepancy in Patients with Idiopathic Clubfoot Deformity, Prevalence, and Outcomes. And your methods was, uh, there was a retrospective review of 300 patients over 17 years and clinically measured limb length discrepancies uh, with two to 17-year follow-up with a mean of about five years. And uh, out of all your idiopathic clubfoot patients, 9% or 27 patients had a clinically detectable limb length discrepancy. Uh, 23. So the vast majority were unilateral club feet, which makes sense. And it was uh, the club foot, which is always the shorter leg. The mean limb length discrepancy was fairly small, 1.21 centimeters, but did range up to uh, in the three centimeter range uh, for some patients. And um, the interesting thing you noticed was that treatment relapse uh, for club foot treatment was 30% higher with the patients who had this limb length discrepancy. And so uh, the takeaway from the group was limb length discrepancy of greater than five millimeters is present in 9% of idiopathic clubfoot patients and is associated with increased relapse rates. So uh, what was kind of your impetus for doing this study and what made you kind of think think about this as being an issue?
2: Uh, two things. I had started to notice that Some of the kids who were coming in with just Aquinas deformity as part of their relapse um, seemed to have uh, just anecdotally, I was noticing had a higher likelihood of having a limb length discrepancy. And so I was curious to kind of start teasing out if that was an adaptive Aquinas to their limb length discrepancy or if. Maybe the limb length discrepancy meant, you know, that it was easier for them to stay on their tiptoes, and so they then, you know, got it. So it was, uh, it was a bit of that. And then I had my first patient that I actually had a um, a significant enough limb length discrepancy that I did an epiphysiodesis for, and I was just like shocked because I think the sort of learning I had had in residency and fellowship was like, yeah, they're always minor. You don't have to do anything about it. Don't worry about it. You don't need to follow them into adolescence. Like don't, don't stress. But I I had one kid that I'd done one on and another one I had recently booked. And I was like, oh, this just doesn't seem right. And they weren't non-idiopathic club feet. They were idiopathic. So uh, it just made me want to look into it a little bit more to get a sense of what it was. Maybe it was our population in Toronto. I have a very like quaternary practice almost every, one I have inherited since I've been there has either had surgery before relapsed before had treatment somewhere else there's only now starting to be kids that I've seen from the beginning and so I thought maybe it was just that but um, even looking at my partner's practices that that seemed to be happening across the board
1: great, great pickup and, and very interesting um, what is your I guess typical threshold for treating limb like discrepancy um, and then should it be different in clubfoot
2: I feel like the precise nails changed a little bit. How, um, again, like the dogma of residency was that anything under two is normal and you didn't have to worry about it. I'd probably say realistically for me now, it's somewhere between one and 1.5, but something congenital that hasn't changed in years, I'm less stressed about if it's one and a half. But um, if it's an acquired limb length discrepancy, I think they're really bothered. And I, I don't really have any problem going forward in treating that. And in the club foot, yeah, I think I tolerate a bit more because most of it is coming from the foot. And I think that is much better tolerated with just even an insole. But when it's truly coming from the limb and it's more in that tibial segment, I I do think they are bothered and I do think it might promote relapse if they're that short and they start toe walking. So I've at first, I I would have never even thought of it that way, but this paper sort of solidified for me that I start thinking about getting a shoe lift in a kid with a club foot. Um, The other thing I noticed is an adaptive change is they seem to develop more recurvatum at the knee um, when they have that equinus because they're back kneeing to compensate. Um, And so when I start seeing that on the exam, I like immediately start to look for a limb length discrepancy now because I feel like it's another adaptive change.
3: Let me jump in for a second, if you don't mind, Craig. So just a two-part question. So you mentioned you initially thought mostly it was from the foot and not the tibia. So explain to us how you evaluate the length of the foot? Are you talking more of falgus? Are you talking because of flattening of the talus? What do you think the deformity the is that leads to a limb length difference in the feet? And then number two is we know that clubfoot is not a foot problem, right? It's a limb problem. And so that's really the question is, is this something that we should be looking at from the start, right? Is this a marker of clubfoot severity? And it should be in Pirani scores or Domingo scores or different scoring systems as a early sign that this is a a more severe clubfoot.
2: Yeah, exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to go with your second question first, because that was the other takeaway for me was that, um, yeah, the kids that seem to have smaller feet, shorter limbs, higher recurrence rates, it kind of all fits a more severe picture. Um, And of course, fits with the fact that they're mostly unilateral. But I think we have a tendency to just assume idiopathic club feet always do well, but not every idiopathic club foot is, you know, the same as the next one. And I certainly see in my practice, a huge spectrum of those kids that need, you know, three, four casts, a tenotomy, and you never even really need to look at them again. If they stopped wearing their boots and bars at two, they'd probably be fine. And then there's the kids that just, Always, you know, they develop a complex club foot or they're always just a bit more resistant. The foot looks smaller even at a young age because I find some of them the asymmetry doesn't show up for a while. um, And some of them it's obvious early on. So uh, I agree with you completely. I think it's part of a spectrum. And I think uh, if you see any of those signs early on, you need to be thinking um, that they have a higher risk of relapse, a higher risk of a limb length discrepancy, and you should maybe follow them up more frequently. Or if they start to develop a bit of Aquinas, don't sit on it, cast it out right away. Don't let it fester. Um, Just being a little more aggressive about keeping those feet supple early on. So I I agree with you completely. Um, And then the first question, I think the feet are just inherently smaller in all proportions. I think that's part of it. And then I also notice some of the ones that have had multiple relapses. And again, this is another chicken and the egg that I don't know the answer to. I don't know if if you've gone through five series of serial casting for a relapse, does your growth get stunted at a certain point? Um, or if you've had surgeries is growth stunted, it's really hard to say. Or is it just that your foot is so much more severe, so it's smaller and it has more relapse and needs more surgery and needs more casting? I don't know, but it's definitely that one, one of the other, correlations we had found was between total lifetime number of casts and a limb length discrepancy. And I, I also think that in terms of you brought up flat top talus, like it, you can look at any x-ray of even a kid who's got a beautiful outcome and the bones don't look normal, even though the foot looks good and the kid does great. There's dysplastic changes across the subtalar joint, show parse joints, the navicular, like we do stuff to the bones by doing that to them. So I, I, I can't imagine that we d- we cause zero, zero harm with all that we do. So maybe some of it comes from our treatment, sadly.
1: I wanted, because I'm I'm a simple man, a simple spine surgeon for the most part, or I try to be, I'm thinking thinking about how I can apply this to my practice. And I know that you guys measured these limb lengths clinically. So um, I do want to hear a little bit about your strategy for measuring clinical limb lengths and when you think it actually is accurate when you can how old a kid can be before they can stand up so if you're going to tell someone who's listening to this podcast how to apply this knowledge to their clubfoot practice when should they stand a kid up and try and figure out their limb lengths because it seems like it's subtle should they take a, a bone length x-ray or scanogram and then uh, we already talked about maybe be a little more aggressive on the ones where you're seeing relapse and they have this but um, what do you do with that knowledge I guess
2: um so even in a non clubfoot kid like if i'm looking for limb length discrepancies I think everything about measuring a limb length discrepancy, predicting a limb length discrepancy is a little bit nebulous. And I feel like you can measure it three times and you're a little bit off every single time. So I like to have multiple ways of looking at things. So I will do um, when they are able to stand reasonably still. Of course, I like a standing exam. And I look, uh, especially because we're mostly looking for tibial and foot segment differences. um, I find looking at the popliteal creases when you're looking at the calf muscle atrophy and asymmetry is a, a really nice easy one the other is even just looking again look at the foot look where the calluses are does their heel hit the ground does their shoe wear off at the back and those will be signs to me that if there isn't it might be aquinas or it might be deformity but it could be a subtle length discrepancy and then use the typical markers as well for overall limb length like you know, ASIS or PSIS or iliac crest, but then I'll also examine them prone as well as supine. So prone, I think is a great way to look again at the tibial segments. The the hard part in in a unilateral clubfoot, of course, is how much mobility there is in the foot and the ankle, like the subtalar joint in the ankle. So sometimes something, a residual cavus or hindfoot varus might make the foot look a little taller than it actually is, but you can at least really see, I find better than standing what that deformity is and where that stiffness is coming from. And then prone again, you can check your galeazzi and reverse galeazzi, but I'll kind of do all of those things. And if they're all leaning towards even a subtle limb length discrepancy, I'm more sold. Um, And then for the, for the ones that are bigger, for sure, you blocks and do your usual thing. Um, Anything that is present that I think is impacting the outcome. So if I see a limb length discrepancy in conjunction with uh, an Aquinas or any other deformity, or if I see a length discrepancy that on gait, you know, I see a short leg gait or anything like that, I will get a limb length standing alignment film. If it's a kid that can't even stand, then they're probably too young for me to start stressing about shoe lifts and any kind of treatment anyway. So I don't really go there. It's usually the older kids. I'll just get them in the EOS and get a a full length standing view. Um, But I generally reserve that if it's at a point where I might actually do something about it. I'm not otherwise x-raying the kids just because if they otherwise have a great foot and great function, I'm not too worried about it.
1: Okay, everyone. So when your clubfoot kids come back, do a thorough exam and consider imaging uh, if it's affecting their gait or seems to be sizable. Um, Any other questions from uh, the other panelists or we can go to the next one? Just one quick question and comment. So
3: I'm on a lot of these podcasts, I'm pushing for when can we use this information and at what point do we have enough to now use it to start changing treatment, right? Or using it for real good prognostication. So. I would be really interested to to see a study of getting radiographs in young kids and these young kids, you could get the full limb, both limbs on a single, you know, 18 inch plate. I don't think it would be hard. It wouldn't be a lot of radiation and make measurements. And I think just like the conversation that we had, Carter, the conversation we had last week with Dr. Frick, right? The complexities of clubfoot and trying to figure out who's going to relapse. That's like the golden ticket right now. Like Dr. Frick said, Do we really have to keep all these kids in boots and bars until they're four or can we start to make predictions of who's going to do well and who's not and start to stratify if limb length discrepancy is repeatedly and we can show it radiographically one of these kind of objective findings that says that kids are going to do worse i think that's that's valuable information to have and i think if we can get something that we can really kind of put the rubber to the road and see it'd be really good information so I don't know if that's something you've thought about or now I'm thinking about it is, you know, doing a study and and getting imaging and starting to try and really differentiate between is this a secondary cause from us mashing on these people's feet and making their tailors flat and crushing down their subtalar joints, obviously in gentle, very kind and very Ponseti-ish ways. Or is it something that's there that is a, a marker that this is going to be more complex and going to relapse more and take more casts and be more of a, a pain moving forward? So very interesting kind of preliminary study on the idea that I think has a lot of uh, potential moving forward.
2: Yeah, I, I don't disagree. That would definitely be, I, I feel like that's what I rack my brain about a lot too, with the retrospective studies that I do is trying to figure out those predictors. And it's difficult. Like you can find 50 studies that tell you the number of cast matters and 50 that don't, and it's, it's really difficult, but what's lacking really is prospective. And I think the other issue is what we think is a good outcome in terms of the foot shape may not match what actually matters to patients in the long run. And we still don't really know. I'm sure in Iowa, you might have a better perspective of what's happening with the patients that are 50 years out from Ponsetti treatment now, but um, we still don't really know. And so a lot of the sort of data that I have been creating in the last three and a half years being back in Toronto with the registries I have is like all of my patients have patient reported outcome measures at regular intervals. And so hopefully, yeah, in time we can start to look at things like that and then match them with outcome measures, because I think that's what's actually going to tell us if these are bothersome to patients in the long run.
1: That's a great 50,000 foot view to uh, move on to the next topic. So uh, the next study we'll review, uh, probably a little bit quicker, is incidence of secondary interventions after early spica casting for for diaphyseal femur fractures in young children. This is in Canadian Journal of Surgery this summer, and the purpose of this study was to determine the number of secondary procedures required following spica casting for femur fractures in children six and under. Um, It was a retrospective study over ten years at Sick Kids. 246 patients, mean age of 2.28 years were included. Only 3.7% or nine patients had secondary procedures, and eight of those were cast wedging uh, in the relatively uh, recent postoperative. And then one patient failed overall, uh, and he received nails. This is a six-year-old, which is worth noting. 51 or 20% of the patients did have a clinically measurable limb length discrepancy. Only three of those were over two centimeters. The average was about nine millimeters, and one patient had valgus, but none had had surgery at the time of follow-up to address the limb length discrepancy or the valgus, and the mean follow-up was about seven and a half months. So the takeaway is that early spica casting is successful, has minimal complications in this age group, and the small rate of secondary procedures uh, is uh, seems to be acceptable, and no procedures were needed for long-term limb length alignment or issues. Uh, my first question is, I mean, this is a clinical question I always have, you know, how bad can the reduction look? How short can it be in a spica and you still end up okay? And I think there is a lot of tolerance for that, but how many of those patients do you think with longer follow-up will end up needing something? What's your... I guess, what's your intuition about that? Or do you really think that they all correct in the end?
2: I will answer your question. I'm going to take a step back because this study actually was, um, or the question was brought up by one of our fellows who had trained in Montreal. And part of why this came up was she was like, what do you mean you guys don't admit the kids and put them in traction before you put them in a spica? So it was really at first, we just didn't have like a double cohort to really look at early versus late spica casting. But it kind of come from that because she had spent time where you get them in traction, get them out to length. And you never worried about a subsequent leg length discrepancy or angulation issue at all. Um, and so it was kind of a question to see, like, does it work? Do we need to think about going back to admitting kids in traction, which I don't think our Canadian healthcare system could absorb if we decided it was the best thing to do anyway. Uh, so that's where it had started from. So when we started on this, we kind of had, you know, I think each surgeon sort of had their own cutoff of what was acceptable. And then um, as we were just talking about before we started, our fracture clinic at SickKids is actually NP and for the most part resident run with minimal faculty supervision. So it really also is dependent on what the resident of the day wants to tolerate and thinks looks looks decent um, and their understanding of remodeling. So I think the the plus side perhaps to our study is that not only do we have, you know, nine faculty who probably contributed patients to this and maybe 12 with the changes of the composition of our group over time, but also probably about, you know, 200 residents over 10 years that had gone through. Um, and yet we still had very little complications from accepting probably, you know, medium, medium leg length discrepancies acutely. So I think, you know, the, the typical cutoff in our center is probably somewhere around two centimeters for a younger patient under six or so. And being uh, where we are, although there are two other children's hospitals um, a little bit to the west of us and one to the east, we have one of the larger catchment areas for our province. So we kind of feel like if kids were coming back with length discrepancies, they would be coming to us and probably not another center. And we're definitely uh, not doing DCs for post-traumatic shaft fractures. So with this study, I think I even feel actually honestly a little more confident if they end up even shorter than two centimeters if they're young enough and the alignment's good. Um, I think in that article, we had one kid with an almost three centimeter limb length discrepancy that ended up with less than a 0.5. Um, discrepancy later when he started with almost three. So I, I certainly feel a little more comfortable that we can accept things. And now the question is, do you even need to wedge your cast at all? Like maybe it's totally fine if it's an extra five degrees off. Uh, maybe those parameters need to be expanded over time too.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, given that it seems like there's so many times when we don't need to worry, when would you personally start to worry? Is there anything that that sometimes you see that makes you a little bit uneasy about the ultimate outcome?
2: For me, it's really actually almost even intraoperatively, like how easy it is to hold it out to length and keep it aligned. And if the mold holds well, um, usually I'll, I'll get another x-ray before they go home the next day because if there's acute shortening, I'm more worried about it. After that, I don't care. But actually we, again, perhaps driven by the constraints of our healthcare system, we're starting a, a QI initiative that will eventually be multi-center within Canada where we're actually going to bivalve the spikes immediately in the OR and then overwrap them with soft cast do a one week check x-ray, make sure the families are fine and they know how to unravel the soft cast and then just tell them how long the spike needs to be on and they'll never come back. So we've kind of taken it a little bit to an extreme. We actually just stopped doing any post-op x-rays on any of our supracondylars now. Um, so we're, we're getting a little more laissez-faire about all of it. So I would say this kind of data is just sort of reinforced for us that we probably don't need to worry as much as we do.
0: I think that's a great last point. That last sentence he said, I think, is the key because what's sort of interesting as it, my personal journey from doing our um, the functional bracing for femur fractures, which is what we've moved through, I personally have moved to, is that the more of these you see and you follow closely, because you have a tendency, obviously, to pay more attention and be more worried about it if you're studying it actively, right? So you're you're looking through all these all these fractures and deciding whether or not you're going to accept it, particularly if you're doing a prospective study, right. But even retrospectively you're looking through and if you're, if you're interested in it, you're going to worry more about it. But over time, I've become to the point where I really don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it looks like on day one. I don't care what it looks like when it comes back in a week. And um, the more extras you get, that just means the more time you need to spend with the parents, making sure that they feel okay about it because you definitely feel okay about it. So I, what I tell my residents that rotate through with me at this point is, I really don't care what it looks like. It doesn't matter. It's going to remodel, especially in this younger age group. And I think the, you know, the one patient in your study that needed flex nails was a six year old. And I think that's a really good, we continue to find this sort of cutoff and it's not a hard cutoff, but it's, it's somewhere around that five or six age group where they're more likely to fail. And so I think that last sentence was just spot on. Like we really don't need to worry, worry as much as we do. Yeah, for sure.
2: And to say that six year old was also a big six year old. So that was probably a kid who was borderline for a spike in the first place. So yeah, if you pick the right management pathway, then probably it'll, it'll be okay.
3: You guys are crazy. You guys are both crazy. <laughs> to take to take the forever memory away from parents of dealing with spike casts. Why would you want to take that away from them? They get to remember that and talk about it in 10 years with their kids and in 20 years the horrible cast and all the troubles that it was. That it's such
1: a, a great memory that we make for these people. Uh, they get to take it they get to take it off at 2 weeks uh, because because <laughs> they're not coming back to get checked on.
2: Yeah, I mean, hopefully they won't take it off. But we've been doing that with sort of more basic things and toddler fractures and the, you know, buckle fractures for a long time. And we haven't found patient parents will take things off before. If anything, they leave it on an extra week. Um, so so far it's been okay. COVID's yeah. helped us with, you know, expanding the virtual options for connecting with families. So that's obviously also an option, but trying to keep them out of the clinic, it'll be lovely. Taking spikes off in clinic, like all of those horrible, horrible side effects are worth avoiding, I think, for everyone's peace of mind.
1: I think that's a part of the culture that may not translate south of the border. I would have to leave instructions on how to take it off at their dirt bike repair shop five weeks later if that's when I want it to come off. I'm going to have to time the release of that information. And now we are going to take
4: a quick break from the show to hear from this month's sponsor. It is Nemours Children's Health. And Nemours has a very impressive reputation for being a referral center, getting complex patients from not only all over the country, but all over the globe. When I had the opportunity to sit down with their orthopedic chairman, Dr. Will McKenzie, I was very interested to hear a little bit more about that work. And here is what he told me. So you, Dr. McKenzie, get referrals from far and wide. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about being a national and international subspecialty center? And what's particularly rewarding about this kind of practice? Well,
3: Carter, I'm going to give you an example using my own experience. Our skeletal dysplasia group cares for a large number of children and young adults, national and international, with Morquio syndrome. We have a multidisciplinary approach with many subspecialties, including orthopedics, genetics, neurosurgery, anesthesia, pulmonology, radiology, therapy, research, and others. We are all involved in a weekly meeting to discuss cases. We identified, investigated, and developed a treatment for a life-threatening tracheal deformity which had never been identified in these people in the past. Meeting these patients as young children, watching them grow and develop in their countries and being invited to graduations and weddings is very special.
4: That is truly awesome. Really inspiring work. The kind of work that uh, the world needs.
1: All right. Um, let's, let's get into uh, Carter's favorite segment, Stirring the Pot. Carter, you can also jump in if you've got something that, that seems, to, seems to fit. Um, but these are all questions I have about limb discrepancy and uh, deformity things and foot things that I think there are lots of ways to do it. And, um, Maurice, there is no correct answer that I'm aware of, but your answer is a correct answer today. So we want to hear what <laughs> you think the right day. answer is, and you got to commit. So correct hemiepiphysiodesis method.
2: It depends on the location and the bone, but most of them for me will be an eight plate with the exception of, say, a distal tibia, maybe a proximal or distal fibula, an ulna, a distal radius I've done with a staple before. I've done uh, some hemi epiphysio in the femoral neck. That's a screw, but around the knee is an eight plate. Let's put it that way.
1: Eight plates around the knee. Okay, what about correct epiphysiodesis method?
2: I'm a drill technique person. The femister is way too much work. I don't have enough time and screw pipsides I do when I want an immediate arrest, but uh, I tend to avoid and I feel like my patients don't like having permanent metal. So it hasn't been my go-to.
1: All right. What do you think about sleeper plates since you're an Uh, eight plate person?
2: Yep. Um, I, I love the concept. I haven't had too many patients, frankly, that I have wanted to do that in. I like the concept, uh, but I do find if you have a patient who might benefit from a sleeper plate, this, the plate has probably already been in a year or two by the time you're going to take out that screw. And I find that the angulation of the screw on the plate and the epiphysis is not optimal. Um, I'm going to want to change it out when I come back anyway. So I'd rather just exchange the whole thing.
1: Femur derotations, what's your implant of choice? Plate, nails,
2: uh, anti-grade, depends retrograde? On the, depends on the uh, age of the patient, but I prefer to go proximal, whether it's a plate or a nail. Young patients, a plate, and older patients, a nail.
1: Okay. And then proximal ring of the tibia frame, you still use a wire, or is it all half pins?
2: So I use the wire to get the ring lined up and then I usually take it out and leave just half pins. I do the John Herzenberg proximal tib-fib syndesmotic screw where you use a cannulated screw across the tibia and the fibula, but you put it the wire in from the fibular side, but the screw in from the tibia side. Um, so I'll use that as opposed to the wire reference wire that's going through the two bones.
1: Perfect. Carter, you got some? So uh, how aggressive are you
4: with non-op for coalitions in an active 12-year-old versus moving ahead with surgery?
2: So I guess the other cultural thing between Canada and the U.S. is most of my patients have waited at least a year, if not two or three, to get into my clinic at this point.
4: Um, I mean, they can't even so get x-rays on their post-op fractures. So
2: that's right. I know. So <laughs> they have generally exhausted their non-operative treatment um, sufficiently by the time they've come to me to the point that now I know how long they wait. So I actually have a smart phrase on Epic of the non-operative treatment that I give to the referring doc to tell them what to do until <laughs> they see me a year later. So um, I I end up operating on almost every coalition that comes in. Um, but that's Definitely a skewed view of the world.
4: (laughs) Do you take out the coalition and fix the flat foot if necessary at the same time, or do the coalition and then the flat foot later?
2: Uh, It depends what kind of coalition. Um, So generally, that'll be a subtalar, and I will do it all at the same time as long as there's truly symptomatic areas of tenderness and functional aspects that look like it's the flat foot as well as the coalition and that the coalition itself has to be tender and painful but for cn coalitions i don't want to do a calcaneal lengthening with a cn coalition resection so i'll treat the one that seems to be the most symptomatic and generally i find in that population it's the coalition so i'll do that first
4: and where's the proper place to get the fat graft for the coalition assuming that's what you use
2: yeah, uh, I use the medial thigh um, just above the knee, a little posterior, so it doesn't show. You just have to make sure your resident doesn't stick the mats into the saphenous vein.
4: So <laughs> uh, Both both sides, if there's bilateral coalitions at the same time, or do you leave them one good leg to stand on?
2: I usually stage them. Um, I've had one or two patients convince me one was the son of an orthopedic surgeon, so I wasn't going to really win <laughs> that battle. They s- seemed to know what they were getting into, but that's usually not my M.O.,
4: and uh, for club feet, are you doing the uh, tenotomy in clinic or
1: in the OR?
2: Yeah, in clinic. Mm-hmm.
4: All right. Those were all the correct answers. Nice work.
2: God, all right. You're not, you're not that. done
1: yet. I'm, com- I'm coming back. Um, <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> tibialis anterior tendon transfer. What is your preferred fixation method now?
2: I now use a biointerference screw. Um, I find it. I don't worry about length so much. I don't worry about pressure sores on the bottom of the foot or the button coming off early. And I haven't to date had any issues. So that's my favorite.
1: All right. What do you do when you do your calc lengthening osteotomies for your fixation? No pin, one pin, two pin?
2: So I'm not to be... to. To echo, to echo Vince, I'm not doing fixation for the graft in the calcaneus. I'm just using the wire fixation across the CC joint to stabilize it. So um, I'll use generally just a wire. But if I'm really struggling to get it nice and centered, then I don't hesitate to throw in a second one.
1: Okay. Um, and then I think I know the answer to this, but I want to hear your answer modified Evans lateral column lengthening or a triple C osteotomy? <laughs> I wrote that down. I didn't even bother asking. <laughs> I, I,
2: um, I would probably not survive my next encounter with Vince if I had any other answer than the modified Evans calcaneal lengthening. But in truth, that's that's very much what, what I do. I, I've definitely done a few other things, but not a true triple C. Um, I've had some pretty nasty, rigid flat feet that I wanted to avoid a triple in. So I've done like a distraction arthrodesis through the CC joint before with a medial cuneiform and a calcaneal slide. So that's probably the closest to a triple C, but it's not my, I don't love that operation. I'd say it's 50, 50 for patients are happy versus patients have complaints because you're still very stiff. Um, And I've done a calcaneal lengthening on the other side and they actually like the other one better, even with more residual deformity. So that's a whole other topic of contention of you know how much flat foot is too much flat foot, but the triple C hasn't done it for me, I guess.
0: And if we planned
4: better, we would have Dr. Mubarak just join the Zoom call right now. <laughs>
1: Unfortunately, I was going to say we
0: could have like uh, floating heads of uh, Mubarak and Mosca in the corners. That would be fantastic.
1: I mean, I, I in fairness, I knew your answer, but your face. You just wanted to you, stir the pot. Well, yeah, you got to stir the pot, but your face, as you uh, tried to describe or try not to be too offensive was fantastic. All right. Last one is just when it comes to lengthening the Achilles or gastrosoleus, or let's say like maybe idiopathic toe walking, or you can take other conditions. What is your preferred method and how do you desert, decide if you do multiple methods, which one you're going to do? Right.
2: Yeah. um, There's a few things, I guess, that go into my algorithm. Um, The the main thing will be the degree of the contracture. Um, and of course, if the silver scold is positive or not, so if the silver scold is positive, then it's, it'll be a gastroc recession. And if I need just a smidge more, I can convert it to a volpia. So I, I find that to be kind of a no brainer, but when it's a true um, Achilles contracture, it depends on the amount of Aquinas, whether I'm going to do like a hook or a double cut or an open Z, but I don't have as many like neuromuscular kids in my practice. So I feel like the percutaneous methods seem a little more effective in those settings um, where it's really muscle tightness and not capsular tightness. And with a lot of clubfoot in my practice and a lot of ones with multiple relapses, what I've I've started to find is even if they've only had a tenotomy or two tenotomies, um, the ones that have undergone multiple casting seem to have a lot of scarring around the Achilles or fibrosis, I should say. It's not surgical scarring, um, that I've actually stopped doing percutaneous methods if they have less than grade. I just go open so I can get a lot of the tethers off the tendon um, and release it and I feel like I get an extra five or so degrees just by releasing all those tethers in that sort of posterior retrocalcaneal space so uh, I have maybe become a little more aggressive with going open that way lately
1: perfect um, all right let's do some lightning round
2: all right I can start
0: us off the first one will be a, a study out of Washu in St. Louis, minimally invasive method for congenital vertical talus and um, PROs, basically promise outcomes. After that, so this describes the minimally invasive method um, is Dobbs' method of reverse Ponseti casting and then reduction and pinning of the talonavicular joint. So, I guess question for everybody: What percentage do you think of these patients
2: are found to recur within the first five years? I think one of the biggest issues is, is it recurrence or was it never fully corrected is the first question that I ask myself. And I think a lot of them are undercorrected. And I open the TN joint always to make sure I've really aligned the talus and the navicular also because I think that surgical dissection of the capsule and sewing it back up um, helps create some fibrosis. And I actually also placate tibialis posterior now for extra stability. So Uh, I'm not sure. I I think kids with conditions like arthrogryposis and other neurologic conditions probably do recur. And it's maybe somewhere in the five to 15% range. I'm not really sure, maybe a bit more, but I think in the idiopathics, it's probably a very low recurrence rate as long as you've truly gotten your alignment at the beginning.
0: Yep, absolutely. What do you guys think? Josh Carter?
2: 27%. 27. All right. Carter?
0: I
4: would have said something around the club foot range. So yeah, like twenty-five to thirty percent.
0: Okay. Yeah. So um I think Maurice, you you hit on a good point, which is there's not really any definitive way of knowing whether these were completely corrected or not, right? And what what metrics were used. Obviously the authors assumed that they were fully corrected, but I don't they didn't give a specific example of, of what that would be or what their delineation of that is. Just tell but, us the percent. What's the percent? killing you Josh you were so close you're always so close how do you do that it was 29% <laughs> so uh this st- particular study is a cohort of 24 patients um with a significant uh, at least medium term long follow up and 29% recurred which was 7 out of 24 patients um what i think was sort of an interesting takeaway was they did so they did promise scores which is kind of you know the new hot ticket to to see what what your PROs are, but uh, they found that there were no differences between the entire cohort versus those with recurrence in the promise scores, which is interesting. So they basically said that functionally they did the same, whether they occurred or not. Um, and then uh, there was no difference between those patients that had an underlying syndrome and those that were idiopathic. So I think that, that actually gives us a little bit of good information. And then uh, the other interesting finding as far as the promise scores goes is that the kids had better the kids that were started on treatment under 12 months of age had a better mobility score than those were started later. So I think that's also, you know, the takeaways from the study, from the author's perspective, were that these kids do well, even if they do recur, and that if you start treatment younger, they're going to do better. So I think those are some general takeaways that we can take from this. Um, But I I did, I was surprised at the percent that they considered as a recurrence, because that was uh, almost a third of their cohort, which is, is pretty high. And then let's do second one is a uh, study. Can we treat type two B supracondylar humerus fractures with closed reduction and casting? You're welcome, so, Julia. You're welcome. We're just yeah, thank you for that little, <laughs> little nugget for me. Um, so I will we'll just take a simple yes or no from everybody. Can we or can we not? Or or maybe should we or should we not is the better question.
4: We you just did not. this in Journal Club, so I'm gonna recuse myself.
0: Recused. We should not. Is we should Josh not.
1: Here? It's such a low-risk surgery.
0: Just okay. Craig?
1: I mean, I know the study, but I, I still feel like it's an opinion question, and I still think you probably should not, except for certain extenuating circumstances.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I would agree with that. Even as a a massive proponent of non-operative treatment of 2As, I would agree that the 2B is still a a no for me. But what was super interesting about this study, if you read the details of it, was um, they looked at their residents, basically, ability to reduce type 2s of all varieties without fluoro with a single reduction attempt in the ER, And they found that 44.3% of the time, they were able to successfully reduce a 2B with a single reduction attempt without flora in the ER, which is kind of impressive. I'm impressed with their residents. But, you know, that there was a five times higher loss of reduction in 2Bs compared to 2As. So I think, you know, this is still a hot topic as far as even getting people to try non-operative treatment in 2As. I know that there's a lot of people that still won't do that. And so I think this is even a harder sell. If you're going to have a five times higher failure. A couple things, uh, 25% were found to have loss of reduction within a week, even of those that were initially successfully casted. So you're looking at a pretty high failure rate overall, even with the first or second try. Um, These were all found within a first week. They did state that final outcomes of the 2B fractures treated conservatively were similar to the final outcomes in the 2As treated conservatively, meaning everybody did well. Uh, which we've found kind of across the board. So, um, yeah, I would kind of tend to agree. I think uh, unless you're willing to accept a quite high failure rate, which generally orthopedic surgeons are not comfortable accepting, uh, then you're probably not going to want to do this.
1: I think the plus side is for the residents in Istanbul who are uh, reducing this, we're all very impressed, and uh, we all have fellowship programs that need uh, (laughs) good people. So
2: Yeah,
0: come on over and teach us how to blindly reduce supercondylage because we would love to see that.
3: All right, so we'll jump over and I'll do these real quick. Um, a couple of studies. So one out of Hopkins, Dr. Sponzeller, and his team, looking at um a very narrow window. Well, looking at the tuberosity fractures. So really they used the the kid database to look and see if there were any. I don't really know how they started this study, but the the premise of the study is to look to see if there is race difference between patients who have tibial tuberosity fractures. What do you guys think that the adjusted odd ratio is for race for tibial tuberosity fractures, particularly for black and for Hispanic kids compared to non-black or Hispanic kids? Adjusted odds ratios. Are we lumping together black and Hispanic? Nope black separate. has one separate and hispanic has another two and 1.5 respectively okay
2: 2.1 and 1.7 okay i'm up in you
0: 2.5 and 2
3: okay and craig probably knows because you know. so shocking this was actually really surprising to me until i really thought about it and even in my population i would say this probably holds true um adjusted odds ratio of eight in black and, uh, 2.7 in Hispanic. So really, you know, and they, they did a few different things and compared some of the race differences using univariate and multivariate comparing to admissions for both bone form fractures, because those have previously been shown not to have real race difference between the two. And it still held true. And you know, that helped to clean up a little bit of the data and maybe kids who are getting admitted in some of those things, but really surprising, I would say higher odds ratios of um, particularly black race and Hispanic race than previously been reported for these two tuberosity fractures, which again, questions what is the real underlying risk factor. Um, And then stuff that we know, you know, age range 13 to 15, certainly higher, and then male sex uh, significantly higher than female. So Uh, A lot higher, a lot higher than I would have guessed. And then the second one is really hard to put onto a podcast, um, but it's a a multi-center systematic review, excuse me, looking at Liz Frank injuries in kids. So not a super common injury that gets treated a lot in the pediatric population. But in their systematic review, they kind of put together a bit of a flow sheet and a treatment algorithm to use and have a nice little graph here in their, their study. For anyone who wants to look it up, it's from the Journal of Children's Orthopedics, just recent volume 16, and... Really what they look at is a displacement. And as you might guess, it's a two millimeter displacement. So similar to adults, they really use that two millimeters of displacement as a kind of fork in the road of operative versus non-operative management. The small number of studies, only 10 out of 200 and something studies kind of met their inclusion criteria. And so a relatively small cohort of studies that they used in their systematic review that showed that uh, more than two millimeters of displacement and stable imaging would lend towards conservative treatment and more than two millimeters of displacement, that there's increased motion and instability of the joint should prompt surgical treatment. So, Again, a little algorithm. If you have a pediatric Liz Frank come in, I think this is kind of just a good quick review to look at different treatment options: um, K wires versus K wires and screws versus other open versus closed. So, sorry, a, I ahead. was
0: going to ask Maurice how do you how do you manage these because I, I find this has got a little bit of a controversial topic in people that I talk to, and I even struggle within my own practice. I tend to not always treat them the same way each time. So, I'm interested if you have an algorithm for this in your own practice.
2: Uh, I don't have a hard stop algorithm and I will end up giving away my talk at IPOS where we're having a debate on this uh, in a few months. So I don't, I will give you the really short teaser. I know, I know. Um, But actually I I have a pretty high threshold for operating on these. I think they do a lot better uh, than we think. So I think one of the things that would tempt me to operate on it more is if there are other concurrent injuries in the foot, like multiple metatarsal fractures or other tarsal bones that, that that's going to push me a little maybe more just because of the instability factor that josh was just talking about um and then the other is also the the standing x-ray and comparing it to the contralateral side If there's a lot of asymmetry there whether it's a three millimeter gap a four millimeter gap or a two it's more seeing that change that's going to push me towards it and, and definitely an older kid like we're we're talking at least uh, you know, a very skeletally mature 10-year-old or 11-year-old and up, not, not a 7-year-old or an 8-year-old, again, with the exception of something incredibly unstable. Great. Thank you.
4: Last one, Carter. Last up. Bilateral tarsal coalitions, we already kind of touched on it. The title of the article asks a question, are postoperative outcomes different from unilateral? Um, it's a POSN article from Boston Children's senior author, Samantha Spencer, And uh, they, like so many things, showed no difference in outcomes, basically, with patient-reported stuff and a few other outcome metrics. Uh, They found no difference if you do both sides at the same time. We already touched on it a little bit about whether it makes sense to do both sides and totally immobilize the patient or not. And so I was just going to ask the rest of you guys, we've already heard from Maurice, what what do you think? Would you do both sides to a kid and
3: um, shut them down for a while or are you insisting on one at a time? My preference is to stage them, but I just literally give the parents the pure option of do you want to just be shut down for a shorter period of time or do you want to stage it? But
1: my preference is to stage it. I would say I'd be more likely to do this one, a coalition resection at the same time. Um I would tell give the patients the option, but because I let them wait bear, you know, early, um, as opposed to osteotomies and things, it's I think it's a little bit less cumbersome for them.
0: Yeah, totally parent
1: patient choice
4: for me. Let them torture themselves. Fair
1: enough. All right. Um, That's actually all we have planned. So we're going to wrap up another hopefully successful uh, September podcast. Uh, Once again, I want to thank my my co-hosts as always. Appreciate you guys and your insight. And Maurice, that was a blast. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. It was really fun. Appreciate
1: Good. It. Well, Appreciate the invite. Well, we hope to uh, see you at some uh, upcoming meetings and um, maybe uh, get to revisit some of these. We like to interview the moderators at meetings and IPAS, so I hope we'll get a chance to sit down with you again. And I'm going to extend an invite to all of our listeners. To If you disagree with any of the pot stirring that Maurice was doing and you have different answers, I want to hear about them. Um, so email us, Pete's Ortho said. Podcast, <laughs> Pete's at gmail.com, or you can always tweet me and Carter on Twitter. And uh, I do want to, again, thank uh, Nemours Hospitals for uh, sponsoring uh, this episode and uh, wish you all a, a happy and safe night. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank Thanks, you, all. everybody.
0: Appreciate you joining us, especially yeah. on the call.
2: Thank you. It was fun.